And it is great to have your company. Don't forget, we'll have Chris Waller up in probably around about 20 minutes. It'll be fascinating to get his insights on the conference, but we also want weekend willers uh, from Chris Waller. We'll have David Gately's game plan leading into the Black Caviar Lightning Stakes full form preview for today as well. But Matt Stewart rejoins me, as does an old friend from uh, the UK and a voice we know very well over here, Racing Post, Lee Modders. How are you, Lee? I'm very well. I am delighted to be in a Melbourne where the sun is finally shining <laughs> after having Maybe been rained on. Maybe we the spring carnival to now. I know. Well, <laughs> it rained every day, I think, I was here, um, October, November. But now this is what Melbourne is supposed to be like when English people come over. So congratulations. <laughs> it's a tough country, Lethal. Yes. <laughs> you get thrown all sorts of things, mate. Well, I, I know this from, was it Saturday with something like 30 degrees and Sunday 17, 18 degrees? 39 tomorrow. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not normal, but it's, it's fabulous at the same time. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and uh, Lee has brought with him uh, the most important person in British horse racing. <laughs> it is uh, great to have uh, the CEO of the British Horse Racing Authority with us, Julie Harrington, as well. Julie, great to see you. Welcome to Melbourne. Thank you. And great to be the warmer pack for Chris Waller. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's hard to compare with Chris. He's very time poor, as no doubt you are, but we've got a small window with Chris, so when he comes, we will get him on straight away. But um, what's your viewpoint, day and a half or a day and a quarter in, of, of the conference and how it's gone so far? My first Asian racing conference, and I'm blown away. You know, it is, you know, up. The attendance is amazing. There's, what, about 750 people here? And I think post-COVID, obviously, everybody's just desperate to get together again and, and talk about racing. And, Julie, I think what has struck everyone is that there are, there are differences in different jurisdictions, but there are common issues and common problems and common discussions that are being had about uh, cost of attending the races, uh, governance issues, crowds, even dress codes has come up, uh, where, where every jurisdiction is at with whip reform. Um, and there's an amazing story that's resonated more than any other. Lee, as you would know too, about this uh, uh, potential imposition, government-driven imposition about probity checks and affordability checks on punters. And to me, what resonates most about this is the walls aren't closing in on the horse racing industry around the world, but that we are on absolute notice about our association with gambling uh, and the gambling sector and how we deal with that relationship as best we can and how we tell our, our good narratives against this community issue against gambling as well. And that's become a, a major pressure point in the UK, hasn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely huge. I mean, f for years, bookmakers back home were viewed in the same way that people like I'm viewed a journalist or an estate agent, they were pantomime villains. You know, there were people that you'd throw tomatoes at. But it was quite a playful thing. In the last four or five years, um, that has changed. And they've gone from being pantomime villains to being perceived by a wide section of the media, certainly, on both, both ends of the spectrum, left and right, as real villains. And gambling has been deemed to be a problem in itself, not just problem gambling. Um, and that has become a huge issue and it's manifested itself in a way that is already hurting racing badly with affordability checks at home. So at the moment, if you are a punter with a bookmaker and you deposit an amount that the bookmaker starts to believe might be excessive based on what you spent previously, you will be asked by that bookmaker to prove that in the bookmaker's opinion, you can afford to bet. You will be asked to provide pay slips, bank statements, uh, 
all sorts of financial details. We spoke to one guy who was asked to provide details of a default settlement. And bookmakers will look at that financial information and decide if you can afford to bet. They're not, no, you, you can go into your off license and buy six bottles of wine. No one will ask you to do that. You can buy cigarettes. No one will ask you if you can afford to do that. You can pay for a world cruise. No one will ask you if you can afford to do that. But with betting, that has been singled out. And because, as in all, so many jurisdictions, British horse racing is to a large extent dependent on income from betting. Punters are walking away from, from betting with bookmakers. They're sometimes moving to the, the, the black market. They're saying, we won't provide this information. And that is having a serious impact already on the money coming into British horse racing. Well, Julie, this is a juggle that you have to deal with in your role as well. And it's not, it's, uh, we were discussing off air that it's a, it's a big issue in Australia too, the, yeah. the perception of uh, gambling in the outside community. The New South Wales state government has cracked down on poker machines. The outside world, in many cases, doesn't distinguish between horse racing and poker machines. How do you perceive the, the issue that Lee just described there from your from the seat you sit in? How do you deal with it? Uh, it's a serious threat, and and I think we're supportive of, of government um, pulling together a new gambling act because the old one um, was written before a, a digital age, um, and of course everybody wants the right protections for people who are potentially problem gamblers, but it shouldn't interfere with. You know, the majority of people who it's part of their hobby. Um, and I think what's happening is the wagering operators, they're, they're waiting for this new legislation to be published. They're running scared of some, some big fines. Um, and they're probably being more draconian than the government are telling us they need to be. But the longer we wait, I mean, I've been in this role now for two years and it was supposed to be published before I arrived and the longer we wait the more those wagering operators um, are putting these measures in place which are probably stricter the government are telling us they're not really affordability checks it's more of a sort of they're calling it a frictionless so it should happen behind the scenes risk check just to see if you've got a bad debt if you've ever been bankrupt and so on but with, with, with no knowledge of what's in that white paper, that you know the, the legislation that's coming, the the wagering operators are doing what they think is right to avoid big fines. And it's perception, as far as racing is concerned, as well, because it's linked to gambling, and it's also the other major issue is is animal welfare. And we've been discussing for years the situation in regards to the whip, which is high on the agenda in the UK as well. I know there's been the changes, and then some. Um, amendments to those changes as well. Where in the social conscience does racing sit in the UK, do you think, at the moment? So I certainly think, you know, in a, in a lot of European countries, the, the, the horse is no longer seen as a working animal. It's seen as more of a pet. Um, and so for a lot of those people who work within racing and are probably more familiar with, with being around farms and the countryside, who still see the horse as a working animal, who know that the whip is, or the crop as, as you guys call it, is foam and doesn't um, hurt the horse. Um, but we know that by talking to, to young people who um, are perhaps not engaging with racing, that they've got a problem with it, that they see somebody riding a finish um, and they they don't like the look of it and that's putting them off racing. Mm. Um, so, 
you know, this is, it's not just um, whip regulations on their own. There's a whole suite of work to make sure that horse welfare is at the centre of everything we do, but people know about it. Do you want to see the whip become obsolete? So we put together um, a group of people from right across the, the sport, but also outside the sport, politicians and so on, to look at all the evidence to answer the question should we um, look at removing the whip for encouragement? Um, and the answer they came back with was no. They thought that using the whip um, to focus the horse, you know, every horse is different. Some horses don't need that focus. Some of them do. Um, that it definitely had a place. Um, but we needed to do something to tackle the, per- the perception because it's a real barrier to, to new people coming in. Just quickly, Lee, we've got to go to a greyhound race at Shepherded in 30 seconds. Uh, what's your take on it from um, those you speak to and the community you mix in as well, uh, outside, in and outside the racing bubble? What's the general feel about the whip? Bubble's the key word. I think within racing, uh, people tend to live within a bubble and they find it hard to understand, accept or appreciate what people outside of the bubble might think. But we've got an ageing racing demographic. The racing fan is generally not a young person. Young people have different views to what the four of us around this table oh, speak probably for yourself. have. Well, <laughs> um, and I think really the, the sport has to has to develop and has to change. But getting it right so that you don't destroy the foot the sport for existing fans, but that you make it attractive to potential new fans is extremely hard. We'll come back with Lee Head and Julie Harrington, the boss of the British Horse Racing Authority, in a moment. But, Mikey, have you got a, an odds update on the second at Shepparton? Yeah, we've got a short price favourite here, number eight, Go Go Doll, at $1.85. Box two and seven are vacant, but your favourite is number eight, Go Go Doll. Almost set here, this one by Mapunga Blazer, trained by Beverly Pell, Go Go Doll. All set here. Five starts, two placings for the favourites. The Elite Collars and Leeds, they're right to run. Race two, Shepparton. And off they go with Go Go Dole. About third at the break. And the first one away is Slingshot Roxy. Let out by two over Bernadette. Oh, gee, the favourites back fourth now. A special Digger goes up third. Go Go Dole fourth. Mia River and dropping out the back is Lovely Romeo. They turn and it's Slingshot Roxy who led. A special Digger's trying hard. So two out wide there is Bernadette. But it's Slingshot Roxy who wins it over. A special Digger third. Close, Go Go Doll or Bernadette. And the last pair behind those were towards the end, lovely Romeo and Mia River. And the winner's gone 22 44. Stand by the winner, number five, and that is Slingshot Roxy. Beats a special digger. Photo third, 8 29 that first split, but it's 5 3 into photo. Yeah, five gets the job done. Five slingshot Roxy. Five eighty a dollar sixty. Number three E special digger a dollar twenty. And is saying a photo for third. But your fate, your winner after race two is slingshot Roxy Mike. And your numbers were five three and a photo. I should have been on that. I always back to five, and my kid's dog is called Roxy. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the analysis we can give you. uh, An example of what the British government wants to really have a good, serious look at. (laughs) uh, With Julie Harrington and also Lee Mottershead. Now, uh, Julie, as the boss of the British Racing uh, Authority, um, we've been discussing here just this morning a lot of emphasis on the cost of going to the track, price point, entry, food, beverage, and trying to get crowds back. Where's it sitting over in the UK at the moment in getting crowds back post-COVID and, and how expensive is it to go to the races? The, the crowds have definitely seen a hit. I mean, 
the major festivals have held up really well but it is those sort of smaller midweek meetings where um, we're struggling um, and and I think I, I was actually really encouraged to turn on the, the TV here and see the same headlines around cost of living, energy crisis. Exactly. You, think, you begin to think, oh, my God, is it just mm. us? Mm. Um, and you can see that it's a global problem. Um, and so I think the tracks are working hard. Um, we've always had really good value for things like kids go free up to the age of 18 and so on. Um, but they've got rising cost bases as well. To get staff at the moment is really hard. Um, so, you know, we've got low unemployment. And so just to get people working behind the bars, they're having to pay, you know, really high wages. Um, that's coming through in the cost of a pint. At, at the, you know, Lee and his colleagues do a sort of regular, what's the cost of a pint and a pie at, 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 at a particular track and and it's going up um so the tracks are having to work really hard to give that good value to punters is it without being defeatist about it is it almost a problem without an obvious solution because the uh, ease of sitting at home on the couch and watching on tv is unbeatable it's uh you cannot no matter how much you reduce costs on course you will never beat the affordability of being at home in Melbourne, too, we're expanding and, and actually getting to places like Caulfield and Flemington for the average middle-class family. They're now 10 stops from... They're a long way away from these what are now inner-city, expensive-area sort of race courses. So when you think about uh, the ease of gambling and cost and that, that can't be easily um, reduced, it's hard to find... You can get to a certain point with trying to fix it, but you can't go all the way, almost. I think one of the things that is important is you know lee mentioned the racing bubble it's important to look outside it mm. and so one of the things we do is compare ourselves with other sports but other leisure operations as well and what we found really interesting is museums and art galleries in britain are free mm. and yep. our footfall may be down sort of six seven percent theirs is down 30 percent mm. so mm. it's not all about cost mm. you know we, we are providing um great entertainment and and i think part of it is getting people back in the habit people have changed their habits and got used to you know i always say to my team we're not competing um with other racing jurisdictions we're competing with netflix and a pizza mm. and um you know the more we just focus on what we're good at putting on good competitive racing and a great day out people remember mm. um why they fell in love with racing in the first place. And without a need to absolutely reinvent the wheel, just stick to what has worked historically and hope that the habits return. Well, we know that the fest, because the festivals, in fact, they're outselling. Um, we know that Cheltenham's already sold out. Um, What's your ticket to get in on your big days? Royal Ascot, Cheltenham. I mean, we've got, I'm sure, same as you, various enclosures, but, you know, it might be 50 quid will get you in, um, what's that, 100 Aussie dollars-ish? And yes. uh, yeah, yeah, eighty eighty odd dollars. Yeah, and um, so it is. A, you know, it's not a cheap day out on one of those festivals, yeah. but um, you know, you get to see some great sport. Oh, you said there's a there's a lot of correlation between Australian racing, UK racing, obviously, but um, in a lot of different areas. And I wonder what the situation is in the UK. Re, how cohesive is racing? All the different jurisdictions. We've got a a huge fight that's going on in Australia between racing, New South Wales and basically everyone now. Um, legal letters being served and we've got a, an overarching body uh, which is basically a toothless tiger in racing in Australia. Do you have a perception on that from a, a leader in a racing authority overseas about 
the functionality of what's going on here? Does that pervade overseas? And what's your thoughts on it? So, you know, one of the one of the threats to racing is, you know, unlike Formula One, where you've got one one bloke who owns it all from sort of bottom to top, um, is we're so fragmented, and. I said I was encouraged to turn on the TV and see headlines about gas prices and affordability checks. I was also encouraged to go, my God, it's not just us. So, you know, we are incredibly fragmented. And and I've spent much of the last two years just trying to get all the different parts of racing to come together to say we need an overarching strategy for that all of us can buy into. and so does the B if if to for Australian listeners to explain the BHA, what level of governments does it has have as it trickles down to club level and various regions? And Lee, a comment from you as well, but first Julie. So it, you wouldn't have you would have the same rules of racing throughout. Um so you wouldn't have different counties or different clubs being able to do their own thing in that respect. Um but we don't own the tracks. Right. Um, so in terms of we can set minimum prize money levels, um, but we, you know, we, we haven't got the powers to to go beyond that. Mm. Um, what I always say we we sort of lead by consent, because our shareholders are also the people we regulate. So we're not a statutory regulator. We aren't appointed by government. Um, at which you know has its challenges. Lee, Lee just a quick. So, yeah. just your take on what's going on here, and whether there are any parallels. Um, the, not direct parallels. No, I think if you look at it from the outside, uh, Australian racing in many ways is the is the perfect model. Certainly compared to most racing jurisdictions, you are swimming in dollars, and yet you have this extraordinary situation. It's almost like North Korea versus South Korea with New South Wales and Victoria fighting against each other. I think I'm ultimately... glad he's got New South Wales as North Korea. <laughs> they are North. <laughs> I, I, I say nothing. Well, ultimately, um, I think where there is a, a correlation Big is that in Australia and in Britain, you'd, you need to accept sometimes that decisions have to be taken for the greater good. Now, in British racing, that tends to be battles between the participants and the racecourses who have dif- differing views on what is the, the right outcome. I think here it's between New South Wales and the other racing authorities. But ultimately, all sides have to acknowledge that there is a greater good. And whilst in the immediate term, a decision might not work out for you, if you look in the long term, the long term health of the sport is what matters. Mm. And that will occasionally mean accepting decisions that in the here and now might cost you a few quid. I think particularly on decisions around... You know the greater good around around those big threats like welfare. wagering, mm. like horse welfare. You, you right. need to realise you're not competing in those areas. What do you think, Julie? You've been in the, the job for a couple of years now. Is the biggest issue right now for you in racing? So I think we need to get this gambling act published because um, the the wagering money is the is the lifeblood of our sport and and funds three quarters of of the prize money um, and. You know, it's been like the sword of Damocles hanging over mm. the sport for the last couple of years. Um, so I, I would say that's top of our 
to-do list. And just to round it off on the, the subject du jour, Lee's always impeccably attired, but um, I, I know that over in the UK you're sort of grappling with little things that can help to get people back to the races, and dress codes is an issue, and it, it blew up after a comment from Andrew Jones, the CEO of Racing Victoria yesterday, and there's been a, a massive response to it about, well, we don't really have one most of the time you can dress casually. Is adjusting dress codes up to any degree a, any sol- any part solution to a bigger problem of engagement, or is it definitely? Is it, it yeah, is? Yep. because I, I always use my mates in the pub as a sort of market research sample. Um, there are so many enclosures in Britain that there is no dress code; just come as you're comfortable. But they don't know that; yeah. they just see the the pictures from the major festivals, and they think they've got to dress up. Yep. And it's a barrier, and it's a particularly a barrier. For, for younger folk. So it's more about telling them they don't have yeah. to dress up than adjusting the dress code. And if you want to dress up, dress up. Yep. Yeah, well, I have. Yeah, I knew you were coming. So. <laughs> the, the, princi- the principle is, is right, though. I mean, I go to back home outside of racing my big hobbyist theatre, and I've never been told by Andrew Lloyd Webber or Cameron McIntosh, you have got to wear a suit yep. to go and watch Phantom of the Opera or Les Miserables. This well, is leisure, it's entertainment. Well, remember the Seinfeld episode where Jerry and Kramer and Elaine all dressed up to go to fig, um, uh, to the opera and they were the only people in, in bow ties? <laughs> <laughs> but generally, people actually enjoy dressing up. Exactly. But, yeah, it, but if they do it because they want to do yep. it, not because they're told to do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Julie, lovely to meet you. Uh, appreciate having your time here because we speak with this man, Lethal, uh, very often. Uh, Is he known as Lethal over in the UK? He will be now. Uh, <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you all. Uh, there's, there's, there's a great synergy between Australia and England, the UK, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to see that once again to the fore at Royal Ascot. We, could you speak to Julie about getting Australian journalists out there to cover the racing and do a show over <laughs> He's there? already going. He wants a fancy ticket. Consider it done. done. Wear uh, your top hat. Okay. Oh, we will. Uh, lovely to meet you, Julie. Good and to you. see you. Bye-bye. Julie Harrington, Thanks, Julie. the CEO of the British Horse Racing and Authority, Lee. and Lee Modders head from uh, the Racing Post.